This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today, we're revisiting a discussion with one of the world's foremost cognitive psychologists, Steven Pinker. Pinker's work often focuses on language and human nature and how they contribute to society as a whole. Joining Pinker in conversation is David Runciman, the academic and podcaster who teaches politics and history at Cambridge University. The two discuss the advances made in our societies over the last several hundred years and whether optimism makes sense in today's turbulent times. We're listening to part one of the conversation today and join us for part two in the following episode and to hear the episode ad free and support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations head over to intelligencesquared.com membership or subscribe to our channel on apple let's join david runciman in conversation with stephen pinker hello i'm david runciman maybe to start with something that cuts across a lot of debates at the moment and it's something that i'm increasingly struck by there seems to be a new division people are asked to pick sides in a world where we're always being asked to pick sides, between optimism and pessimism. You're either going to be one of the optimists, or if you're not, you're one of the pessimists. So you use the language of optimism and pessimism in the book. Occasionally. Occasionally. But you also have a, a bit where you, you are wary of it. Why has that become the choice? How did we get to the point where, and you know, I'm asked this question a lot, you talk about something in contemporary politics or contemporary social developments, and people want to know, so does that make you one of the optimists or one of the pessimists? Where did we, how did we get here? Well, it's not clear that, uh, that, that this represents a change from the past because there have been famously optimistic and, pol- and pessimistic politicians in the past. Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, Ronald Reagan said, it's morning in America. So the, the, the language has been with us probably for as long as there's been politics. Uh, the, uh, I think that the... Uh, new focus on what is, I think, mistakenly called optimism comes from the fact that uh, for the first time, there's been attention to data on whether there has been progress in the past. Now, that's a different question as to whether things will get better in the future, but it's surely relevant to it. Many people have opinions on which way they think the world is going, which way they think society is going, which are uh, claims about uh, particular measures of human well-being, war, crime, prosperity, Um, health, and which are testable claims. But until recently, no one has really uh, tried to plot out the trajectory of the world in the past empirically so that our opinions on the present are actually informed by our our best knowledge of which way the world is going. And we just know from uh, from, uh, opinion surveys that people have systematically incorrect assumptions about uh, recent change. They think that global poverty is increasing. It's been, in fact, decreasing by a lot. 
They think that uh, deaths in war have been increasing. They've been decreasing. They think that crime is increasing. They're wrong. Uh, and the kind of argument that I have made is not one of prognostication into the future, but it's just pointing out facts that people don't know. Uh, and that is often mistaken for uh, optimism, a, a, a doctrine that I don't think is, is particularly coherent. There's no reason to think that things will, will uh, automatically get better any, any more than they'll automatically get worse. But because of the, I, that category, the dichotomy in people's minds, they think that pointing out, pointing out facts that things have gotten bet, but better is a, a form of optimism. Because you could say that the challenge, the thing we want to avoid here is fatalism. And Indeed. both optimism and pessimism can be, and in some ways inherently are, forms of fatalism. They, they plot trajectories from the past to the future. And I think you used the Hans Rosling phrase, um, possibilism or to be a possibilist. Yes. That's so, as a way, you need to, the future needs to be open however you use the data from the past. Indeed. And of course, the future is open. It's going to depend. It's more very, open than the past. It's, 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 it's quite right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, the um, I, I'm uh, repeatedly uh, bemused, annoyed, frustrated by the fact that uh, people mistake, uh, to, to borrow another Rosling term, factfulness, namely the idea that our opinions ought to be informed by our, our uh, best data. Uh, and the, the facts show that there has been improvement. That's not optimism. That's looking at reality as opposed to speculating based on your, on your imagination and your preconceptions. So one of the things that, that has puzzled me here, and again, it comes out of a range of writing, yours, but also the factfulness book, is that as you describe and make a very persuasive case, we're kind of hardwired to favor bad news over good news. There are various aspects to how we function cognitively. It's not just you can't just blame it on the media. You can't blame it on a new news environment as well. That's responding to certain, certain cues that we are primed to pick up on. So Rosling shows that you ask people basic questions about the world and they think it's much worse than it is. And this includes people working in government, in the aid industry, people who are working in NGOs, people who are working in universities, intelligent, well-informed people get the world wrong. People have presumably always got the world wrong. And yet those are the people who have produced this trajectory towards progress, as it were, a world of pessimists, if we can call them that, or people who misapprehend the world. These are also the people out of whom progress has come. We've never had a society or a community where, where people have been genuinely fully aware of the progress that's been made. That, Am that's I wrong actually, to... I think you are wrong, yeah. At least, I, well, at least I'd want to see evidence that that's yeah. the case. And I, it, what evidence on... that we've never had societies where people have been genuinely attuned to the way the world is going. Well, okay, so let me take a step back. Yeah. It is certainly true that a, a pervasive feature of our psychology is that we are more affected by the negative than the positive, called the negativity bias. Bad is stronger than good. We dread losses more than we uh, enjoy gains. There are many more words for negative emotions than for positive emotions. We remember bad events more than, than uh, good events. But of course, it can't be that that locks us into a constant level of, uh, of pessimism. Otherwise, we would all be equally pessimistic at all points in history, and that's clearly not true. Uh, now, I don't know if, if pessimism means rec recognizing problems. Uh, that, I think that's a, not a very useful uh, characterization of pessimism because clearly problems don't solve themselves. That's like the fundamental law of the universe. More, there are many more ways for things to go wrong than for things to go right. That's presumably why the negativity bias evolved in the first place. 
And I would say that improvements in the past weren't made by, again, I don't know what you mean by pessimists. They're certainly- Yeah, I'm using by, the language that I said we shouldn't use, so we need a, a, a price for it. Yes. So if- uh, But people it, who've it, misunderstood the, you know, people who do not have the facts- present in mind. People have misunderstood the world that they live in, and yet those people also are producing I, progress. I, 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 uh, I'd like, no, I'd like to see evidence for that. I don't think that is correct. Uh, so the audiences like, that Rosling talks to, all of whom yeah. consistently get the world wrong, these are also the people who are working in this world to make it better. Well, no, it, because almost everyone that Rosling talks to gets, gets it wrong. Mm. Uh, some of the, and uh, many of the people who uh, actually are working to make it better are not uh, misinformed in the way that the majority of his audience is. Uh, in fact, many of the people who have the who are doing the most. Well, just Bill Gates would be an example, and he is someone who yeah. is well aware of the data that uh, that uh, progress is possible, which is precisely what emboldens him to uh, to, to push forward with his philanthropic uh, endeavors. So, Norman Borlaug, father of the Green Revolution, credited with saving a billion lives by the development of vigorous hybrids. Was he a pessimist? He, he recognized that there was massive uh, hunger and famine and insufficient calories. That's not pessimism. That's, uh, that's an acknowledgement of reality. Uh, at the same time, he reasonably thought that uh, there are roots to improving plant varieties that could alleviate this uh, calorie insufficiency. And so he worked very hard to develop them. Now, is that pessimism? Uh, the fact that he noticed people are dying of, of starvation, that's not pessimism. That's an awareness of reality. So, yes, it is only the recognition of problems that allows problems to be solved because problems don't solve themselves. That's not pessimism by any reasonable definition of pessimism. Surely it's it, that, that uh, pessimism doesn't consist of opening your eyes, seeing the problems around you and wanting to solve them. And so let's part the pessimism optimism. It's my fault. I brought it back in. Language. A society of people developed Western society like ours, which is at the moment seems to be full of people misapprehending the world, inherently fearing the worst when there are many things that are getting better all around them. A society which is fully cognizant of the facts. So we don't, you know, these people you talk about, they are the few, the minority, they are often pioneers or visionaries. Yeah. What would a society where, as it were, everyone got it be like? I mean, it's and this is an open question because we've never had one. Yes. I mean, do you have a sense it would be an extraordinarily like turbocharged progressive society? Would it be different from ours? What uh, would it be like where the, where the news was a fair reflection of the world? Because it's quite hard to imagine it. Yes. I, I think it, could, it, it uh, could be more constructive. Again, I don't, I, I, I'm always wary of imagining some impossible utopian future in which human nature has been, uh, been zeroed out. Uh, but I do think that the needle can be moved. And I think that there, I, for example, in the case of, you know, let's take our, what's probably our biggest challenge right now, which is the climate. Uh, I often hear people say and write, uh, we're cooked. Nothing we can do about it. Uh, let's enjoy life while we can. And that's the fatalism. Right? Uh, that, that, that is the, the, uh, the fatalism. Uh, I, I believe that if there was more discussion in academia, in the media of um, pathways to a decarbonized economy, how do we get there from here? What, what would realistically allow us to uh, enjoy all the advantages of energy without uh, damaging greenhouse gas emissions, that we would, have, we would move more quickly, we would have less climate denial, uh, and uh, <clears throat> we'd have a, a better chance of surviving this uh, crisis. In fact, I, this is not just my own speculation, but there are um, uh, studies that show that if you present to people the uh, idea that, uh, for example, nuclear power might be a way of dealing with climate change, 
Now, without advocating that it is, but just noting that it could be, fewer people deny the fact that human activity is warming the climate in the first place. Now, of course, that's irrational. Whether or not there exists a a solution to a problem is independent of whether the problem exists. But it is part of our psychology that we're more likely to accept the existence of a problem if we think that that there's a a way out of it. Uh, And that's a feature of psychology that perhaps could be constructively um, exploited if we had a a more reality-based discussion, both uh, an assessment of our current situation, the the possible routes forward, a look back to see if the routes that we're anticipating are realistic, namely has the world in the past done anything like what we're advocating it do at the present just to calibrate our hopes and expectations uh, to reality. But yeah, I think that 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 would be a um, a better society. I don't imagine that we'll ever get to a point where everyone thinks like like that. But on the other hand, everyone doesn't have to think like that because, as we know, uh, there's no complete participatory democracy where every decision gets made based on public opinion. Elites uh, get their way for better or worse. And uh, even if the people with their hands on the levers of power uh, have a a more reality-based view, uh, that would be uh, sufficient to to uh, uh, put us in a better position. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The climate question raises a category that you write about in Enlightenment Now, again, a relatively new term, existential risk and existential threats, and climate is sometimes characterized as one of those. And and there are big risks with thinking in terms of existential risk, and you highlight some of them. I mean, one is fatalism, we're screwed, nothing we can do. 
Another is that we spend so much time thinking this is such a terrible prognosis, we need to do you know, prioritize it that we don't accept the risks that come with over emphasizing a worst case scenario, even if it's reasonably remote. But Martin Rees has, has made an argument in his most recent book, not the Our Final Century one, but The Human Future, where he says one of his problems is we now live in a world which faces these enormous potentially existential challenges. And unlike in the past, they are man-made, they are human-made. And we, you know, it depends on us. And in many cases, we know what to do. We just don't do it. And this is relatively recent evidence of human incapacity to deal with these things. It's not like these are acts of God and we do what we can and hope for the best. We could do something about this and we're not. And he says that gap, again, I'm not going to call it pessimism, but that gap is the thing that gives him pause and thinks that this might be different. We're now living in a world where the human-made threats are real, the human capacity to deal with them because we made them is real and we're not. Uh, well, and, and, we, and we may not, but uh, but we ought to. So uh, the uh, but the fact that we're not is being driven by what? Is it by this innate? Because this this is in a context of existential risk, where he's talking about thinking about these worst case scenarios. Yes. Yeah, so the um, I, I have a public bet with uh, Sir Martin on whether an act of uh, bioterror or bio error will kill a million people before the year twenty twenty. Which uh, is next year. Which is next year. When did you take I, the bet? I, uh, just two years ago. I think I'm going to win, but... Uh, oh, those are good odds. Hope so. <laughs> you got but, yeah, I, th I think so, yes. Uh, but the... Um, well, we, uh, we don't know that we're incapable of act acting on it. The world has gotten together and dealt with uh, pretty serious uh, threats in the past. Uh, the ban on atmospheric nuclear testing, the um, uh, ban on chlorofluorocarbons... The uh, Paris Accords were not sufficient to deal with climate change, and of course, the United States is planning to withdraw from them. But it does show that the world, the world, um, can uh, get together and agree on a course of action. And if the accelerating targets are are uh, implemented, um, then uh, then that it's a possible route to to uh, to dealing with it. And it could be that as weather events get more um, unignorable, that. Uh, Public opinion will increase even further toward accepting the reality of climate change. And all, a majority of people already do accept it. There are various forces in uh, government that prevent uh, everyone from acting on it. Uh, it's possible that even though we ought to act now aggressively based on the quite reasonable projections of climate scientists, that it will take more uh, salient disasters that make headlines to, to move people's hearts and minds People might move too late, not enough, but they. But on the other hand, they might move enough in time if they the headlines remind them of something that they ought to have recognized just from the analyses. So, in a way, is it that it's the gap between facts or factfulness and experience that's still the, the barrier another, here? That so we, we have to close that gap. We certainly have to close that gap. We have to um, depoliticize uh, the, uh, many of the formidable issues that are facing us. Climate change being a paradigm case where. The denial of man-made climate change, uh, it turns out, has nothing to do with scientific ignorance, which is what most scientists mistakenly believe. The uh, polls are, are, are very clear that climate change acceptors are no more scientifically literate than, than the deniers on average. What differentiates them is politics. The farther you are to the right, the more you reject climate change. And uh, I think that our, our, uh, our, our thought leaders, our scientists, our politicians, our activists have been oblivious to the damage that has been done by politicizing climate change. There are some 
uh, climate experts who say that the worst thing that's happened to the climate movement was Al Gore producing the movie An Inconvenient Truth because that made it a left-wing issue. And then if it's a left-wing issue, the people on the right uh, are, are, are not going to get aboard. So that's another problem. Uh, I think a third problem is the um, a kind of uh, traditional legacy green thinking about the environment that rejects technological change, that blurs uh, the, uh, the climate problem with a variety of other green issues such as um, smallness and uh, return to the land and a rejection of capitalism and democracy, uh, often merged with a, a laundry list of other left-wing issues. We see that in the United States now in the so-called Green New Deal, which is a kind of dog's breakfast of left-wing causes, uh, which, and in, and which in fact don't add up to actually solving the climate change problem. Um, anyway, those are, th- are uh, three impediments to dealing wisely with climate. Can we talk about the Enlightenment? Because that's, after all, the theme of your book. Um, and the Enlightenment itself is, it, it cannot be sort of placed somewhere on this these binary divisions between optimism and pessimism. It's an incredibly complex historical phenomenon, both at the level of the individual thinkers. Um, and we know the Enlightenment in your university, in my university, has an increasingly bad name mm-hmm. among a younger generation of students for whom you can't extract the good progressive ideas given the context in which they came up and also some of the views that went along with them. Are you trying to extract the core from what you think are peripheral ideas? Can you do that? Is there a way of separating out in this complex phenomenon the bits that you want to emphasize from mainstream 18th and 19th century thought, much of which for many people now is abhorrent? Yes, um, absolutely. That's the whole point of the book. The, the, the point of Enlightenment now is not let's look back to a bunch of great guys in the second half of the 18th century and do what they say. Uh, that let, would be a bad idea. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. And that's not – that is adamantly not what the book says. I, the, the, book, the book's idea is captured in the subtitle, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress. Now, rather than listing those four abstract nouns, I, w- I wanted a label for that, that uh, quartet. I could have called it uh, – cosmopolitan liberalism now or secular humanism now. But uh, in uh, conventional ways of talking, these ideas are called enlightenment values, enlightenment ideals. And so that's the term that I used. And indeed, a lot of them were articulated during the enlightenment to give those 18th century dudes their due. Uh, But it is most – it would be against the spirit of enlightenment ideals to uh, hold – the people in that era up as a kind of um, um, secular prophets uh, or people who are, are giving us wisdom, whose texts we should parse, whose creed we should sign on to. That's uh, a common misunderstanding uh, of the book, even though it is explicitly disavowed in the chapter on uh, the Enlightenment. So you could have called it Enlightenment 2.0 or something. I mean, Enlightenment now sounds a bit like that thing now. Well, it's, Whereas it's, yours is the new Enlightenment, isn't it? Aren't well, in fact, the, about... the new Enlightenment was the original title of the book. Uh, but, but you uh, never considered 2.0. That's, a, that's that, too much of a cliche. That, that, so, ni- so 1990s. <laughs> <I know>. yeah, <laughs> so. And in fact, there is a book called Enlightenment 2.0. And no one's heard of it. So, <laughs> so yes. So the, yeah, there's a common misunderstanding, particularly uh, uh, among uh, people who study the Enlightenment, who, are, who I think, oh, he's talking about what I've spent my life studying. But in fact, those guys disagreed with each other. Well, yes, I, I, I know that. 
Uh, a lot of the questions... They disagree with themselves in some sense as well. I mean, like, and with themselves. Internally, it's, this is not a coherent... Absolutely. And they, the, the Enlightenment is not a creed. Uh, and and uh, some of the questions that they were obsessed with are almost incomprehensible to us today. It was a different era. Uh, and now I think a lot of the um, uh, attempts to blame Enlightenment thinkers for slavery and imperialism are uh, bizarre. Uh, I think it's part of the uh, current academic mindset to uh, reduce all issues to a question of, of, uh, of racism, uh, to see the entire w- world through the lens of racism and anti-racism. Uh, and some of them were racist because in, in the 18th century, almost everyone was a racist. And unless we write off the past as a bunch of um, bad people, uh, we've got to uh, appreciate the thinkers in the context of their era. Uh, Examine the, the ideas separately, unbundle them, not say was you know, Hume a, a good guy or a bad guy, but rather among the things that, that Hume said, which of them were uh, well defended and, and, and still worth defending. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Daniel Ben-Coran and edited by Tom Hall. Join us for part two of Steven Pinker and David Runciman in the following episode. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2.